Welcome, and thank you for joining Latter-day Stone Catchers, where we believe the gospel is love-centered and stones should be caught and never thrown. My name is Jeff, and I'm glad you're here. If you haven't already, I'd recommend you go back and listen to or watch the previous episode where we talk about Romans chapters 1 through 6, because today we're going to talk about the rest of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapters 7 through the end. And a lot of the themes in chapters 1 through 6 are continued and built upon in these later chapters. As a quick summary, Paul tells the Romans in chapters 1 through 6 that they shouldn't judge. In fact, he tells them in chapter 2 that judging is inexcusable because none of us understand or keep the law perfectly. Instead, we should rely on grace. We should have faith or trust in the grace of our heavenly parents that comes to us through their son, Jesus Christ. And that having faith or trust in that grace is what will bring us peace. And when we do that, he teaches in chapter 6 that we will walk with a newness of life. And he tells them in chapter 6 also that they are no longer under the law, but are under grace. And this is sort of where we pick up in chapters 7 through the end. Paul continues on some of these same themes when he tells them in chapter 7 verse 4, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. And he tells them in verse 6, But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter. So he's continuing this theme of walking in a newness of life, or as he says here, serving in a newness of spirit. When we recognize that keeping the law isn't something that we have to do in order to earn grace or earn a place back in our Heavenly Parents' presence, that gives us a newness of life. We realize that our Heavenly Parents' grace is there for us and that it's also there for everybody else. And that will impact every interaction we have with other people. We literally walk with a newness of life and serve in a newness of spirit. Rather than, as it says in verse 6, in the oldness of the letter. I love chapter 8 verse 1 where it says there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. That of course reminds me of John chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 where Jesus tells Nicodemus for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is the part that it reminded me of. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So just like Paul says in chapter 8 verse 1, that there is now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, that's exactly what Jesus was telling Nicodemus in the book of John, that he was not sent into the world to condemn the world, but rather to save the world. So once we recognize, have faith in, and trust in the grace of our Heavenly Parents for us and for everyone around us, there is no condemnation. I love the way that Adam Miller paraphrased these verses in his book, Grace is Not God's Backup Plan. Let me read from that really quick. He says this, Through Jesus, God has done what the law on its own could never do. Because the law was given for the sake of grace, only God's grace can fulfill the law. It's delusional to think that keeping the law, even keeping the law perfectly, could ever fulfill the law. The whole law points to Jesus. So God gave his own son. He offered him up as a sacrifice. Jesus walked among us as flesh and blood and, as flesh, exposed the truth about sin and its abuse of the law. Extending God's grace, Jesus made it possible for the law to be fulfilled. 
He made it possible for spirit to manifest in our own weak flesh. Grace isn't God's backup plan in case we can't keep the law. Grace was, from the beginning, the whole point of the law and the only way to fulfill it. As Adam Miller said, grace is not God's backup plan. To me, that's what this entire letter to the Romans is about. In verse 15 of chapter 8, it says this, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. I love that imagery in verse 15. We haven't received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Instead, we have received the spirit of adoption. The law isn't given to us to put us into bondage and to make us fear some sort of punishment or retribution from our heavenly parents. Instead, we have received a spirit of adoption, or we should know that we are children of our heavenly parents. And if we're their children, we are heirs joint heirs with Christ to return to live with them and to be glorified with them. As Paul stated earlier, we are not under the law. We are under grace. So we shouldn't fear. We shouldn't be filled with anxiety about whether or not we'll keep the law perfectly or even good enough to be considered acceptable to them. We haven't received the spirit of bondage again to fear, Instead, we have received the spirit of adoption or the knowledge that we are children of our heavenly parents. I do think this part in verse 17 is important. It says that we're joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him. As I think about what that might mean to suffer with him, I think about the type of suffering that he endured that we can as well. None of us can match the ultimate sacrifice that he made as the only begotten son of our heavenly parents. But as we look at the way that he lived his life and what brought suffering to his life, what is it that comes to mind? What comes to my mind is realizing that in every situation that he was in, he looked for those who had been left behind or marginalized or told that they were unworthy or unclean or unfit to be able to worship in the temple or to receive a healing blessing. He looked for them, and then he loved them and blessed them. He spent time with them. He defended them. He healed them. And in doing those things, he was rejected. He suffered. Those of the religious institution did not like who Jesus Christ was including and embracing and empowering. They seemed to like keeping things in nice, neat little boxes of clean and unclean, worthy and unworthy. Jew and Gentile, those who can worship in the temple and those who cannot, those who are considered to be keeping all the laws of Torah and those who are not. Jesus Christ broke all of those boxes and walls and showed us that what we should do is love, minister to, empower, include, uplift everyone. And the suffering that he endured came because of that work. His suffering came because he included those that people in the religious institution thought should not be included. 
So when Paul tells us here that we are joint heirs with Christ, if we suffer with him, that's what comes to my mind. Not, not that we somehow need to atone for our own sins, but that we need to minister to, include, empower, love, and uplift those who are marginalized, those who are left behind, and those who the religious institution may look at as unclean or unworthy. And in doing that, we will no doubt endure suffering, but we must suffer with him in order to be joint heirs with him, in order to be glorified together. We need to be willing to extend mercy the way that he did if we are going to be joint heirs with him. I saw a wonderful post on social media that I think sums this up perfectly. We need to be willing to be rejected for who we include rather than being included for who we reject. If we go further in chapter 8, I love verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? That verse reminds me that if our heavenly parents want something for us, that there is literally nothing that can get in their way. There is nothing that can stand between them and what they want for us. If God be for us, if they be for us, then nobody can stand against us. And they will always be for us. Our heavenly parents will always want us to feel their love. They will always want us to return and live with them. They will always be for us, which means that nothing can ever stand against us. There is nothing that we can do or that others can do to us that would ever remove or diminish the love that our heavenly parents have for us. It is absolutely infinite, which is exactly what Paul teaches next. He says in verse 34, who is he that condemns or who could possibly condemn you? Because it is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Paul's hammering home this point that nobody can condemn us because Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, is on the right hand of God and is pleading for us. So while we will most definitely encounter people in this life who condemn us for things that they don't understand or potentially even mistakes that we have made, Maybe we even condemn ourselves at times because we're often hardest on ourselves. Paul is reminding the Romans and us here that we shouldn't worry about anybody who condemns us because Jesus Christ and our heavenly parents are for us. They want us to be with them. They want us to feel their love. They want us to know that we are absolutely worthy and of infinite worth. And if they want those things then nothing can stand in their way. And now I'm going to read verses 35 through 39 from a different translation because I think it just reads a little bit better. If you don't have a different translation of the Bible, I highly recommend it. It makes these epistles and everything else just so much easier to read. Starting verse 35, it says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
That is such a powerful passage that tells us that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That phrase in verse 37 is a little bit interesting where it says we are more than conquerors. What it's essentially getting at is that we are more than victorious or we are overwhelmingly victorious. What I think of when I read that is that God's love and mercy and grace for us is so massive and so infinite that it doesn't matter what we have done or others think we have done or what others or ourselves may be condemning us for. It doesn't matter what the, to use the words of Paul, hardship, distress, persecution, height or depth or anything else in all creation that we think might be separating us from the love of God. It is so big and so infinite that it will overcome absolutely everything and not just Barely, it won't be just enough. It will be so overwhelmingly victorious. God's love is so much bigger than anything else that we could ever do or anything else that might ever try to separate us from that love. I think, unfortunately, in our church, sometimes we present the idea of our Heavenly Parents' love as being conditional or limited or or something that grows as we keep certain commandments or make certain covenants or do other good things. And while those things might help us to feel closer to our heavenly parents and might help us to feel their love more fully, there is nothing in those things that we do that makes them love us more. And there's nothing that we can do that would make them to love us less. Their love is simply always there. Paul is teaching us here that it is absolutely unconditional. Something can't be infinite and also have conditions. That would be, by definition, not infinite. Paul is telling us here that there is nothing that can separate us from the love our heavenly parents have for us. And I hope each one of you know that and feel that. All right, let's jump to Romans chapter 10. Starting at verse 3, it says, for they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Again, I think the King James there is a little bit confusing, so I love this translation that I'll read. It's from verses 2 through 4 from the Contemporary English Version. It says this, I know they love God but they don't understand what makes people acceptable to him. So they refuse to trust God, and they try to be acceptable by obeying the law. But Christ makes the law no longer necessary for those who become acceptable to God by faith. That translation makes it so much clearer what these verses are getting at. We refuse to trust God, and we try to be acceptable to God by obeying the law. We've misunderstood the reason for which the law was given. The law wasn't given as requirements that we need to fulfill before we will be acceptable to or loved by our heavenly parents. As it says in verse 4, Christ makes the law no longer necessary for those who become acceptable to God by faith. We need to trust or have faith in the grace and mercy of our heavenly parents and realize that we don't become more loved or accepted by our heavenly parents because of the things that we do. We are already loved. We are already accepted. Yes, we can do more to show that love with those around them, but we need to know that we are already loved and accepted. 
And when we know that and feel that, there's almost nothing we can do to hold ourselves back from sharing that and telling that to those around us, that they are also loved and accepted. Verse 12 of this same chapter says, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul's telling us that there's no difference between Jews who keep the law and Greeks who, who and Greeks who have not grown up keeping the law, that all are saved, anybody who calls on him. Where it says that the Lord over all is rich unto them that call on him, it means that the Lord is generous to all who call on him. Getting back to that same idea of being more than conquerors, it won't be just enough to help us to return to their presence. God isn't just filling whatever the gap is between whatever we're able to do and how good we actually need to be to be able to return to their presence. Their grace and mercy is more than enough and they will be generous with it so that each and all Jews and Greeks, there is no difference, can return to their presence. Our Heavenly Parents' grace and mercy is for everybody, not just a select few who understand and keep the law in a certain way. Let's jump over to chapter 11, verse 32. The KJV says, For God hath concluded them all in belief, that he might have mercy upon all. Again, the KJV doesn't really do it justice here, so let me share this translation, the Majority Standard Bible. For God has consigned everyone to disobedience, so that he may have mercy on everyone. This sounds a little bit strange, and what it seems to be saying is that a test was given to everybody so that it's so hard, nobody could pass. And to be honest, that feels a little bit messed up. Why would God do that? Why would God give a law that nobody can keep? Why, as it says in this verse, would he conclude them all in unbelief? That's what the KJV says. Or this other translation, consign everyone to disobedience. Why, why, would, why would that happen? While I'm still thinking about and pondering about that myself, it makes me think maybe the point of the law isn't for us to see how well we can conform ourselves to be in accordance with it and can we do a better job than other people, but perhaps the point of the law is that none of us will be able to keep it and so what we're down here to learn is to love, bless, lift, and celebrate the lives of other people even when they don't conform to the law as we understand it. And that while we may feel like we know what our Heavenly Parents want us to do in our lives, that may not necessarily match up with what they want somebody else to do in their own life. And this life is for us to learn how to be together, rejoice together, despite our differences in how we live, love, and believe and I think Paul tells us how to do that in the next chapter, which in some places really reminds me of the baptismal covenants that are listed in Mosiah chapter 18. But we'll get to that in a minute. In chapter 12, verse 1, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. I think for a long time I understood that verse to mean because God has had mercy on you, you need to make sure that you do everything you can to conform to the law, what we were just talking about, 
so that you are showing God that you're grateful that mercy and really so that you can become quote unquote worthy of that mercy, which of course isn't the point as we've been talking about. I really like the way that Adam Miller paraphrased this, that we should worship God by answering his gift with a gift of your own. In other words, because mercy is being extended to us, we should then extend that mercy to others. Not because we're in some sort of a higher position or better understanding, but instead we need to admit that we aren't in a higher position or a better understanding of the law or our heavenly parents or anything else. We have our current imperfect understanding of what we think our heavenly parents want us to do, and our heavenly parents are granting us mercy as we try to follow that as best we can. We should recognize that they will also grant that mercy to everybody else in their imperfect understanding of what their heavenly parents want from them. That doesn't mean that we should point out, oh, well, I think you have this part wrong, so make sure you fix this in your life. It means we should recognize that all of us have something wrong and that all of us are probably doing the best we can to follow what our heavenly parents want each of us to do. We should extend the grace and mercy to all as they are working through their own path back to their heavenly parents, just as our heavenly parents do for us. I love what it says in the next verse that, be not conformed to this world. And that's another idea where I used to think that meant I need to make sure that I'm not doing the same things that the world is doing. And I think that's true, but I understand that differently now. If we look at if we look at the current state of things, there is so much division, so much finger pointing, so much judgment, so much my way is better than your way. There is so much of that. What I think Paul is telling us to do, because it's consistent with the rest of his epistle, is that we need to make sure that we're not conforming to that part of the world, that there will be differences of opinion, that there will be different ways in which we keep the law. What we should not do in those instances is judge one another. As he said in chapter 2, verse 1, that that is inexcusable. Rather, we should recognize our heavenly parents' grace for everyone. Let's jump to verse 9. It says, Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. If you look at the footnote for verse 9, it does say for dissimulation, sincere or unfeigned, real. So let love be sincere, unfeigned, and real. If we have any ulterior motive, even if we think it's a good one to our love, then we're not doing it right. Our love needs to be sincere, unfeigned, and real. Other translations indicate without hypocrisy. If we're loving somebody, hoping that as a result of us showing love to them, they will more closely align their lives to our understanding of what our Heavenly Parents want from us, that isn't the kind of love that Paul is talking about. That isn't Christ-like love. Christ-like love is without dissimulation, without hypocrisy. It's love unfeigned. It's sincere. It's real. It doesn't say, I'm loving you in hopes that you will do this. It's just pure love. He says in verse 10, Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. I like the NIV and NLT translations of that last verse. The NIV says, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above 
yourselves. The NLT says, love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Genuine affection means taking delight in honoring one another, not only when somebody's life conforms to what we think it should, but in whatever their life is, wherever their life journey takes them, let's be genuine in our affection and in our honor towards them. In fact, that should be so great that we should honor them, as the NIV says, above ourselves. If we think of people who make choices different than ours, choices that we consider to be very significant, I think in those situations, we're not always great at honoring others above ourselves, especially when they make those choices that we look at as being wrong. And if that's the case, then we're not loving the way that Paul is telling us that we should. He says in verse 13, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. Other translations indicate that that is about taking care of the poor and the needy among us, but also among strangers, those who are not part of our church or not part of our group or not part of our culture. We need to be taking care of them as well. Verse 14 says, Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. That's the part that reminded me of our baptismal covenants in Mosiah 18. Mourn with those that mourn, and comfort those that stand in need of comfort, and bear one another's burdens that they may be light. Paul says it this way, Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Again, it's important to point out that it doesn't say rejoice with them that do rejoice if they're rejoicing in something that you think is right or you think is truth. It's simply saying rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. There are no qualifiers there. Only weep with them in certain circumstances or if they have only made certain choices. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. I love the next verse, verse 16. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. That word condescend has a real negative connotation now. A few other translations read that same verse this way. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Here's another translation. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be proud to enjoy, don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. And here's another translation. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be arrogant, but associate with the humble. Do not be conceited. In other words, we need to look at everybody the same. We need to not think that there are levels of higher or lower in any sort of status because there just aren't. Everyone is a child of heavenly parents. This is a hard thing for us to think about in our world that is so hierarchical and in so many different ways puts people on different levels. But Paul is telling us, consistent with the teachings of Jesus Christ, that we need to completely forget all of those hierarchical teachings. There is no higher or lower or greater or lesser. We need to treat everybody the same. We need to be of the same mind one towards another. We need to live in harmony with each other. And because Paul knows that we don't think that way, that's why he tells us we need to 
be willing to associate with those who we view as being of lowly station. First of all, we should just not view people that way. Second of all, to help us get over that, he's telling us those are the people you need to be talking to, listening to, loving, and empowering. That reminded me of a beautiful idea from Richard Rohr. He said this, Most of us understandably start the journey assuming that God is up there, and our job is to transcend this world to find him. We spend so much time trying to get up there, we miss that God's big leap in Jesus was to come down here. So much of our worship and religious effort is the spiritual equivalent of trying to go up what has become the down escalator. I suspect that the up there mentality is the way most people's spiritual search has to start. But once the real inner journey begins, once you come to know that in Christ God is forever overcoming the gap between human and divine, the Christian path becomes less about climbing and performance and more about descending, letting go, and unlearning. Knowing and loving Jesus is largely about becoming fully human, wounds and all, instead of ascending spiritually or thinking we can remain unwounded. As I said, that was from Richard Rohr in his book, The Universal Christ. And that's a beautiful reminder that too often we think about church or religion as some sort of celestial ladder that we climb in order to return to our heavenly parents' presence. But that shouldn't be what religion or a belief in Jesus Christ is about at all. Instead, we should be climbing down whatever ladders we think exist, because in reality there are none, and ministering to, lifting up, loving, listening to, empowering, and including those who others may view as being lowly or less than or anything else. Those things are not true. They definitely are not less than, but too often in society and even the church, we view other people that way. And our job is to be with and love them. Verses 20 and 21, Paul says, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. And then I'll be honest, I don't really agree with the rest of Paul on this verse. This is what he says, For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Clearly, Paul has already forgotten what he wrote just 10 verses earlier when he said, Let love be without hypocrisy, or let it be sincere and unfeigned and real. We should not give our hungry enemies food or our thirsty enemies drink so that we can heap coals of fire on their head. That feels like a really odd thing to say, and I honestly just don't agree with it. What Paul says next is, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. If we think that in being kind to our enemies, we're heaping coals or some sort of punishment on their head, then um, we need to take a second look at our motivations and whether or not our life is aligning with our Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 21 says, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And that verse reminded me of some things shared in Adam Miller's book, Original Grace, about good and evil. This is what he said. Justice isn't the work of doing evil to people. Justice is the work of saving people from evil, saving them from both the evil they suffer and the evil they do. It's the work of making bad people good and good people better. 
The logic of justice isn't good for good and evil for evil. The logic of justice is good for good and good for evil. End of quote. So often we think about justice as the idea of you do something bad, something bad happens to you. You do something good, something good happens to you. But that's not the way that God approaches justice. And he's telling us here, Paul is telling us here, that that's not how we should approach it either. That we do not overcome evil with evil. Instead, we should overcome evil with good. We respond to evil with good. We respond to something bad with something good. In fact, Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that that's exactly what we should do and that that's what God does as well. If we turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, I think, Jesus says this, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. I'll interject there that Jesus did not say that in doing so we would heap coals upon their head. Jesus says this next, that ye may be the children of your Father, which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect." Adam Miller said about these verses, In Jesus' hands, the logic of the law is clear. Not good for good and evil for evil, but good for good and good for evil. And what's more, returning good for evil is not here positioned as an act of mercy that counterbalances justice. Rather, returning good for evil is justice. Returning good for evil is how you fulfill the law. And that is exactly what Paul says in chapter 13, the next chapter of his letter to the Romans, that this is how we fulfill the law. In chapter 13, verse 8, he says, Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth one another hath fulfilled the law. That's a striking statement because there are so many things that we think that we have to do or should do or could do to quote-unquote fulfill the law. Paul is telling us here that we fulfill the law simply by loving one another. The Good News translation renders this verse this way. Be under obligation to no one. The only obligation you have is to love one another. Whoever does this has obeyed the law. We fulfill the law. We can only fulfill the law by loving one another. We can never fulfill the law in any other way. None of us can be perfect in making our lives conform to our understanding of the law. Even if we could do that, we would have to admit that our understanding of the law is imperfect, and therefore there's no way that we have perfectly conformed our lives to our Heavenly Parents' law. But here, Paul's telling us that we don't need to do that. Instead, we fulfill the law by loving those around us. That is how we fulfill the law. Another translation says it this way, Owe nothing to anyone except mutual love, for he who loves his fellow man has satisfied the demands of the law. It's unfortunate, but I've heard this approach to the gospel or living in accordance with our Heavenly Parents' law being mocked sometimes about, oh, you just think that the gospel is about being nice to each other. My truth is that I'm just nice to other people and then I know that God will be happy with me. 
I can think of several times in devotionals or sacrament meeting talks or lessons where that approach to the gospel has literally been mocked as oversimplistic and and even sometimes categorized as the approach of a lazy learner or a lax disciple. But in my mind, nothing could be further from the truth because it's in truly loving those around us, especially those whose lives or ideas don't line up with how those around us think that life should be lived. As we mentioned earlier in the podcast, that is exactly what brought about Jesus's persecution. He was persecuted and rejected because he loved everybody, because he included everybody, because he healed and defended and stood by and spent time with everybody, but especially those who the religious institution did not approve of. To those who persecuted Jesus, religion was all about making your life conform to current understanding of the law. Jesus' approach and what he wants us to do and what we covenant to do when we take his name upon us is to love everybody, especially those who have been rejected and left behind by the religious institution. Think about it. What's easier? going to church to fulfill a commandment, or going to love those who feel unloved by making space for, speaking on behalf of, and even defending those who are marginalized or misunderstood? Is it easier to go without food for a day, or to find, serve, and love somebody up close who has nothing? Is it easier to go about our lives worrying only about whether or not what we are doing is in alignment with how we understand God's commandments or to look for people around us who need love? Is it easier to simply just say our heavenly parents love everybody or to stand with and empower those who have been hated because of racism, xenophobia, homophobia, or misogyny? Fulfilling the law by loving everyone around us is not a cop-out, is not the easy way out. It is literally what brought about Jesus Christ's persecution and crucifixion. He loved everybody. He included everybody. He wasn't hated because he kept the commandments. He was hated because of the way he loved those who didn't. Love doesn't mean trying to get everybody to believe in God the same way that you do. Love means celebrating, being with, empowering others even when they don't believe God in the same way that you do. And that is the only way that we can fulfill the law. I'm reminded of the two times that Jesus Christ was asked a very specific question of how do we obtain eternal life? In one instance, he responded that we should love God and love our neighbor. And then the questioner came back with another question and said, who is my neighbor? That's when Jesus shared the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's important to note that the ideal that we should strive for in that parable was a Samaritan, somebody considered unworthy of temple worship, somebody hated by the religion that Jesus Christ belonged to, Judaism. Yet that was the ideal that we should strive for. It wasn't about making our lives conform to the law. It was about loving those around us who looked at things differently than we do. The other time Jesus Christ was asked this question was by the rich young ruler. And Jesus Christ, in the Matthew version, first responds to keep the commandments. The young ruler comes back and says, which commandments? Jesus responds by listing six of the ten commandments, only those that have to do with how we treat other people, 
Jesus didn't include any of the Ten Commandments that have to do with how we worship or our relationship with our Heavenly Parents. And then he adds, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The rich young ruler does respond and say, I've done all these things already, what lack I yet? And Jesus Christ tells him to sell all he has and give it to the poor. The answer that's consistent in these stories is to love your neighbor as yourself. It has nothing to do with how you understand or worship God or make your life conform to your understanding of God's law. It has everything to do with how you treat people around you. It is in loving one another that we fulfill the law. That is the only way that we can fulfill the law. And it has that same phrase in verse 9 of chapter 13. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul tells us again there, love is how we fulfill the law. All right, let's get to Romans chapter 14. This is one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture. Paul so far has really taught some pretty big idea concepts. Don't judge, love your neighbor as yourself, love is how you fulfill the law. These are ideas that can then get a little bit messy in application, but Paul talks about some real serious issues, contentious issues that they were having in this day. He talks about the day of the week on which to worship and dietary restrictions. Let's start in verse 1. He says, Him that is weak in faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations, for one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. So Paul is being a little bit unkind here, at least based on this translation, and referring to those who are still subjecting themselves to the dietary restrictions as weak. He's saying that no matter whether we eat everything or think we should only eat herbs, we shouldn't let that bring us to disputation. In fact, in verse 3 he says, Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not, and let him, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. No matter what your understanding of the law is, you shouldn't judge what somebody else's understanding is. And then in verse 5 he talks about the next issue. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be full... Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. I love that phrase. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. If you think there's a day of the week that's more special than others, great. If you think all days of the week are the same, great. Be fully persuaded in your own mind and don't judge somebody else for their understanding. Verse 10 says this, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Why dost thou set at naught thy brother? for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul's saying, how could we possibly judge? Remember, I keep referring to it, but in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, judging another person based on your understanding of the law is absolutely inexcusable. This reminded me of a great talk that President Uchtdorf gave several years ago when he was in the first presidency. In this general conference talk, under the heading, The Bottom Line, this is what he says. This topic of judging others could actually be taught in a two-word sermon. When it comes to hating, gossiping, ignoring, ridiculing, holding grudges, or wanting to cause harm, please apply the following. Stop it. It's that simple. 
We simply have to stop judging others and replace judgmental thoughts and feelings with a heart full of love for God and his children. God is our father. We are his children. We are all brothers and sisters. I don't know exactly how to articulate this point of not judging others with sufficient eloquence, passion, and persuasion to make it stick. I can quote scripture. I can try to expound doctrine. I will even quote a bumper sticker I recently saw. It was attached to the back of a car whose driver appeared to be a little rough around the edges, but the words on the sticker taught an insightful lesson. It read, Don't judge me because I sin differently than you do. We must recognize that we are all imperfect, that we are beggars before God. Haven't we all at one time or another meekly approached the mercy seat and pleaded for grace? Haven't we wished with all the energy of our souls for mercy to be forgiven for the mistakes we have made and the sins we have committed? Because we all depend on the mercy of God, how can we deny to others any measure of the grace we so desperately desire for ourselves? My beloved brothers and sisters, should we not forgive as we wish to be forgiven? That lines up perfectly with what Paul is teaching here. Why do we judge? If we're judging, we need to stop it. As President Uchtdorf says, that is the bottom line. I love verses 14 through 17 of this same chapter. Paul says, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. That goes back to what Paul was saying earlier. Be fully persuaded in your own mind. If you think something is unclean, then to you it's unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. The kingdom of God is not all about who's keeping which laws which way. The kingdom of God is about righteousness, or in other translations, justice, and peace and joy. That's what the kingdom of God is about. The kingdom of God isn't about making sure other people are following the commandments in the exact same way that you are. It's about doing things that bring justice, peace, and joy to everybody. I love the way that Brian McLaren talked about these verses in his book, A New Kind of Christianity. So I'm going to read a little bit from, this is page 155 of his book. Brian says this, Having emphasized the importance of love, Paul gets down to grassroots contemporary issues that put love to the test and that can easily alienate and divide Jews and Gentiles. Dietary scruples, holy day practices, and so on. Paul's message is not new or unique. It's exactly the message of Jesus. Don't judge one another. On these controversial matters, he says individuals should do two things. First, be convinced in their own mind, and second, keep their convictions to themselves. What they do regarding disputable matters is important because it expresses their devotion to the Lord. But what they do is not relevant to what others do as their expression of devotion to the Lord. The kingdom of God, Paul mentions it explicitly now, will not be a community of uniform policies and practices. Only one policy will be universal. Love. What a perfect description and summary of Paul's teaching in this Romans chapter 14. Honestly, one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture. 
Paul goes on in chapter 15, and we'll end with this. In verse 7 it says, Wherefore, receive ye one another as Christ also received us. What a perfect summary of what Paul has taught throughout this entire epistle. That we should receive others as Jesus Christ has received us. We think about how Jesus Christ received people during his mortal ministry. He received them as they were. He didn't ask about their worthiness, what laws they were keeping or weren't keeping, how much they had donated to the temple treasury, whether they'd eaten the wrong things or eaten with Gentiles or participated in the right rituals. All he asked about is if they believed. And even then, when there were those who said that they believed but also had unbelief, he still performed miracles. That is how Jesus Christ receives us. He receives us as we are today in this moment, and he receives us with perfect love. Because as it says in 1 John, God is love. And if we are Jesus Christ's disciples, we should also be perfect love no matter the circumstances. Remember, your heavenly parents love you, I love you, catch stones, don't throw them. We'll see you next time. Thank you for watching or listening to this episode of Latter-day Stone Catchers. If you're listening to the podcast, I would greatly appreciate if you could leave a rating and a written review on whatever platform you listen to. Those go a long way in helping others know that they can trust Latter-day Stone Catchers as part of their Come Follow Me and Gospel study. If you're watching on YouTube, I would love to know your thoughts about these chapters down below in the comments. Thanks again for joining Latter-day Stone Catchers. Have a great week.